Are you looking for truth from God's Word that you can understand and apply to your life? You'll find it today on Make It Clear with Dr. Stan Pons, Bible teacher and president of Florida Bible College in beautiful Orlando. Listen now as Stan makes it clear. We're going to be in a portion of Scripture today that I think would really bless you, and I've titled this, I think, Seven Blessings of Highly Elected People. Now, when I say that term, seven blessings, I don't want you to think that there are only seven blessings from God or that there are seven handwritten blessings that mankind has to say to God. There's a whole lot more that God gives us in His blessings. But in this portion of Scripture, we're going to look at seven of those blessings. Now, I don't know if you're like me, but when I have Thanksgiving dinner with Carol, she sets out all the trimmings. There's always far more than I could ever eat. And as I look at it, I take it slowly and I enjoy all the food that's before me. There's no such thing as a fast food Thanksgiving meal unless perhaps you're having to work and you've got to go through a fast food restaurant. So you take it very slowly. You savor it. You really enjoy that. And that's what we're going to do for the next couple of times that I'm with you. And we're going to talk about those seven blessings, but we're going to slow down just a little bit in the beginning. Some of you are going to wonder, when we ever get through the book of Ephesians? And the answer is yes. At the end, it's a little bit like the dessert. You know, when you get to the dessert, you kind of gobble that right up, don't you? But it's at that beginning of the meal, you really drill deeply into that, and it's a very special time. So if you open your Bibles, we're going to follow Ephesians chapter 1, and today we're going to just look at verses 3 through verse 6. The next time, we're going to cover more of those blessings as we go through 7 through 14. The passage I want you to look at now is found in verse 3, because it kind of launches us into this and how precious this is. It says this, God, at the beginning of the passage, and then comes into this, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. Even this one verse, you could preach an entire message. God is the blesser. We are the blessee. The blessings are in the heavenly places that are for us. So all of this is God's blessing in our life and how precious that is. One writer titled this section of Scripture of these seven blessings. He called it the hymn of praise with seven stanzas. It's the hymn of praise with seven stanzas. Now, I know that uh, in some hymn books, in some churches, they have many, many stanzas. And sometimes you'll go to those very traditional churches and they'll say, well, let's sing the first, third, and the fifth stanza. I get that because some of them just go on and on and on. On the other hand, when the writer was writing this, generally he has a thought in mind when he writes the hymn and it flows. First stanza, second stanza, third stanza, fourth stanza, on down the line. Now, when you're going through Scripture, you also want to make sure you park on that Scripture, then you go to the next one, because often one truth builds upon another. So we're going to be doing that in this section of Scripture, and I hope that it'll be a blessing to you. Now, to do that, I wanted us to begin taking a faraway shot. Let's talk about Thanksgiving again. I don't know what happens at your house. We don't do this every year, but sometimes when there's family all together and Carol gets the meal on the table, she automatically says, wait a minute, wait a minute, because Carol is the picture taker in our family. I don't take good pictures. I forget to take pictures, and she likes to take pictures. And so she'll say, let's get a picture of this. Have you ever done that at your home? Have you done that, taking a picture of the table before you eat? I usually like to say, take a picture of the food before the carnage. You know, So you kind of take a picture of that. Well, we need to now take a picture of this meal that we're going to take. 
in the next few weeks together. So let's take a picture by looking at four notes that we're going to look at, four truths to remember. Here's truth number one, the first note. These are the seven blessings. We've been talking about that the last few moments, the seven blessings. But I think it would be good for us to kind of separate those blessings and look at them in its totality. And we're going to do something we don't often do here, but I'm going to ask you to help me with this. I know you have your notes. You have the seven easily identified in your notes. And how about if we do this together as one family, shall we? Guess you can do this too if you want to join us. I'd like for us to read through those blessings, all seven of them, slowly and carefully. I'll say blessing number, and then you'll respond with the blessing. I'll say blessing number next, and then you'll respond with the blessing. Are you ready to do that? Do you have your notes in front of you? Those that are listening without notes, listen carefully, and you're going to find the seven blessings as we articulated them in a more simple fashion in this passage. Here they are. Blessing number one. God chose me to be holy and blameless. Blessing number two. God has adopted me into his forever family. Blessing number three. I am redeemed and forgiven. Blessing number four. God has shown me the mystery of his will. Now, number five, blessing five, has a little choppiness in there. And when we get to it, you'll understand it better than what it's saying here. But it's still a blessing nonetheless. So let's go to blessing number five. I am chosen for an, as an, inheritance. Blessing number six. And number seven. Beautiful. Six. I'm included in Christ. And seven, I have a guarantee, the guarantee of the Holy Spirit. Those are the seven that we're going to begin to unpack, like taking different pieces of our Thanksgiving meal and enjoying eating those together. Let's look at... Note number second, our second note. This is one long sentence in the Greek. And so I hesitate to kind of parse it out and divide it up over a couple of weeks in our teaching. But at the same time, I wanted you to know it is one whole sentence. So there is a main thought in this sentence. And of course, the main thought will always be the centrality of Jesus Christ, but particularly the centrality of his grace. And you'll hear me park on that often in this message. If there was perhaps a key word in the book of Ephesians, it's quite possible that key word might be the word grace in there. So again, it's one long sentence of his wonderful blessings to us. Let me ask you a question about this, see if you uh, might agree with this. What are some of the biggest things that affect our lives today? I think uh, some of the big things that affect our lives today, not maybe number one, but one of those, I think the stock market and the investments and where people place their money affect us. Those of you who are retired and perhaps living off some of your investments and perhaps it's coming in and out of the stock market, every month you get your statement and you look at it and you have more there or less there. So that's affecting your decisions in your life. So the money, the stock market, investment does. How about another one? How about your health when you go to the doctor? When you go to the doctor, maybe on a yearly basis... Your health will go up or down. Sometimes you have high blood pressure, sometimes low blood pressure, sometimes you've gained weight, hardly ever lose weight. But nonetheless, it changes, doesn't it? And how about relationships? Uh, some of you know what it's like. I think of our college kids here, that they get deeply involved in their relationships at school. They try to keep those relationships, but then they move in and do other things in those relationships, ebb and wane. So they fluctuate as well. That's the part of life, and we can go on with a whole list of things that change. 
Some of those changes, we hope, will be for the better. Some of those changes, we would say, please don't change. We like it just the way that it is. And unfortunately, there are some changes that really bother us. So here's what I want to bring to you. That which matters the most would be that which matters with God. And that which matters with God is our relationship with Him because of what He has done for us on the cross. And all of that is wrapped up underneath this wonderful bundle of seven blessings for highly elected people. These will never change. They will never fade. And so that's why we ought to learn these. We ought to rest in these. We ought to rejoice in these. And as the context would tell us, We should praise God for these. So if you're looking for something to praise the Lord for, you could look at these and say, these are unchangeable blessings that I have as a believer in Jesus Christ. So let me now speak to those who haven't trusted Christ as their Savior yet. I want you to know that we look at ourselves as being highly privileged people, not because we're good. In fact, if anything, we're nothing more than depraved sinners that happen to now become an object lesson of God's grace and mercy. And he did all of that when Christ died for us on the cross and rose again. We trusted him and a whole lot of stuff happened, including us becoming recipients of these seven blessings. Why am I telling you this? It's because those who have trusted Christ so desperately want you to become a believer in Christ as well. We want to give you those blessings, although they're not ours to give to you. We want you to have those blessings. So while you're maybe looking at these, I want you to know they're there for you. God wants you to have these blessings, and you have to do that by simply trusting Christ as Savior. So these are wonderful blessings for you. So we went over note number one. There are seven blessings of God. Note number two, it's one long sentence. I like this one. Note number three, the references to Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. In these seven blessings, you're going to see the Trinity. No, you won't see the word Trinity in there, but you will see the dynamic of the deity in there, and that would be the Trinity. You're going to see the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And I love to do that, and I'd like to encourage some of you that read through your Bible frequently, that as you read through the New Testament especially, that you would look at a block of Scripture, and as you do, as you continue reading through it, look to see if you can see a reference to God the Father, and then a reference to God the Son, and then a reference to God the Holy Spirit. And you'll see how often that trilogy, that Trinity, is found in a block of Scripture. In this passage, you're going to see God the Father in verse 3. Blessed be the God and Father, and you could throw in, and the Lord Jesus Christ. Number two, you could see God the Son, and that should be verse 12. Although we're not going to touch on that verse today, I wanted you to see the Trinity in these verses of the long sentence in the original Greek. And it says, we who were the first to hope in Christ, trust in Christ, depend in Christ, depend on Christ. The third is God the Holy Spirit found the next verse, verse 13, having believed you were sealed with the Holy Spirit of promise. So you have God the Father, you have God the Son, you have God the Holy Spirit, so you have the whole Trinity wrapped up in the seven blessings for us who are highly elected people. And let's look at note number four. I talked about that a moment ago, but I want to drill a little bit more deeply into that. The fourth one is the repeated phrase of, to the praise of His glory. The praise of His glory. Now, we will talk about that because it is such a rich passage of Scripture. Let me have us look at that. If you do have your Bibles, why don't you look at Ephesians chapter 1, and we're going to go to verse 6. We will come back to verse 3, but let's look at verse 6, and let's read these. You might even want to mark them. Some of you may want to number them to see three times this passage wrapped up in who God is, 
His grace that was given to us, we become a recipient and an object lesson of that grace. And now because of that, we give ourselves in praise and glory to him. So verse 6 says, to the praise and glory of his grace. Drop down, if you will, to verse 12. To the end that we were the first to hope in Christ who would be to the praise of his glory. And then you go a little bit further to verse 14, and it says, who is given, the Holy Spirit referring in context, who is given as a pledge of our inheritance with a view to the redemption of God's own possession. And then the doxology, to the praise of his glory. Would you say that with me? To the praise of his glory. Let's do it together one more time. To the praise of his glory. Oh, I'll tell you, when we pause just for a moment, you may look over your life, and is there anything that you could praise God for? Maybe this week has been a tough week, from responses that you got at the doctor's office to a problem on the job to relationships breakdown, other things that are swirling around you. But just for a moment, we always have someone for whom we can praise, and that's going to be our Heavenly Father, the Lord Jesus Christ. And so let's remember that we can live a praise-filled a praiseful life for the Lord. So those are those four notes there that I think might be helpful to you, that you might be able to own in your own heart. And I'd spend some time meditating on these, rejoicing in those, humbly receiving those in your mind as truth, and then also giving him all the praise and all the glory and all the honor. Today we're just going to cover blessing number one and number two. Blessing number one sometimes can be a little bit more, uh, I can say, controversial, and I'm not here to do that, but I am here to give you a perspective that I think is biblical, at least a way that you can look at it that could be acceptable. So let's go to blessing number one out of the seven blessings. The first one is, God chose me to be holy and blameless, or to be holy and without blame, however you want to say that. You may now circle the word chose, because we are going to talk about God's choosing. Some people refer to that as election. That's where you got it in the title. You might have the word predestined. We could even perhaps throw in the word foreknowledge if we wanted to. But the idea in this verse is just as he has chose us in him. So the word chose and the word predestined is found in our passage. To put it very simply, the word predestined simply means to decide beforehand, all right, to decide beforehand. So it's a little bit more than foreknowledge as a, as a passive attribute. It's a little bit more of an active attribute where he now chooses to do this. So now that's when the questions begin to come, especially for those that have been circling around Christianity or Protestantism and Reformed theology and Arminian theology. And so now how does this all fit in? Does God choose me? Do I choose him? How much is I, am I predestined so I don't really have a choice? Do I have a choice? Does he give me the choice? And all of that. There are some tremendous books that have really parsed the languages. They've studied the, uh, the background of all of this. And if I was to do the diligence that you would want me to do, we would be on this one topic probably for months and maybe years. And if I was really honest, the whole issue of election, predestination, and man's free will has been debated for hundreds of years and there are still some that uh, they haven't really rested on what it's going to be. It is my desire to share with you a perspective today that at least will bring you, I believe, a biblical um, comfort in trying to reconcile two irreconcilable theologies. 
So I'll be doing that in just a moment to prepare you. Now, if you're on one side of this theology that you are listening and you're very, very reformed, I want you to know that I respect you and I love you and there's a lot that I can learn from you and I have learned a lot from you, especially when I taught the book of Romans. There's a great deal of material that I have learned from the Word about the sovereignty of God. It raised my consciousness and certainly my respect for our sovereign God. On the other side of this, those of you that have a tendency to be a little bit more Arminian, which means that we really have the free will and that whatever it takes, we're going to try to be a believer, we're going to make you a believer, whatever it is. Um, I have an understanding of that because there is a choice. We must, in a sense, call upon the name of the Lord. We must believe. It is our responsibility to trust Christ. So I get that. I don't know that I go as far in Arminianism to say I can. Um, my choice is to get in, but I can also cho- choose to get out. So when people say, Stan, what are you? Are you a Calvinist? Are you an Arminian? And basically I simply say, I, I want to be, and I hope that I am, and I believe that I am, and as God continues to teach me, I believe I'm a Biblicist. So I try not to put myself into one camp or the other, and I would encourage you to be careful of that, because once you do, once you say, I'm a, I, I believe in more Calvinism, then Many people will define Calvinism differently. And so now you get into some deeper weeds on what it is and what it's not, and now puts you in a position to be labeled, and you may not be in that full camp. On the other side, if you say, oh, I'm more Arminian, I get, I get all of that. But on the other hand, if you say, I'm just that, or I am that, that then leaves other people to interpret what that means, and they begin to label you, and they say, that's what you believe, and maybe it's not what you believe. So it's best to do your own study. So today, I want to submit to you that this is a great opportunity for you to dig deeply into these truths. And if you need some resources to help you, I'd be glad to do that. Now, I'm not walking away from this passage, but I am letting you know that there are good material. there is good material out there that will really help you. So God has chosen us. So the question is, how does he really do this? And I look at all of these questions, and it uh, really boils down to two. And here are the two questions. Does man have a free will? The answer is yes. Does God have absolute control and he chose us? The answer is yes. So now we're into some deep weeds, and I'm going to give you a word that you probably have not heard or used very often. I'm going to say it simply. I'm going to have you write it down. I'll spell it for you because the truths of God's sovereignty and man's free will would fit this word, and here's the word. It's the word antinomy, antinomy, A-N-T-I, N-O-M-Y, A-N-T-I-N-O-M-Y, antinomy. Now, in reading the background of people that are on all sides of this issue of man's free will, election, etc., I chose to look at a couple of writings, and then from them I extrapolated some simple information that I think would help you. Besides reading some of the great theology books on this, especially the missionaries that were tending to be far more Calvinistic, if I could use that term, I found the following writings to be helpful. Writings from Luther, writings from Spurgeon, writings from Ryrie, Stedman, Packer, and M.R. DeHaan. And I'm leaving out some of the authors that came out of Florida Bible College just so there wouldn't be a bias. So with all of those, I chose to give you a quote coming from J.I. Packer. Now, there are some in some theology books that will be quoting Packer. I'm choosing this section to explain to you what he had to say about an antinomy, A-N-T-I-M-O-N-Y. Now you might be saying, what is an antinomy? If you let me read what he has to say, I think it'll become more clear to you. So here it goes. An antinomy exists 
when a pair of principles stand side by side, seemingly irreconcilable, yet both undeniable. They are cogent reasons for believing each of them. By the way, the word cogent, I had to look that up. It means clear and persuasive. So think in the term clear and persuasive. I'll put that in there now and read this sentence this way. There are clear and persuasive reasons for believing each of these two sides of a principle. Each rests on clear and solid evidence. But it is a mystery to you how they can be squared with each other. You see that each must be true on its own. But you do not see how the two can both be true together. Neither, however, can be reduced to the other or explained in terms of the other. Two seemingly incompatible positions must be held together and both must be treated as true. Such a necessity scandalizes our tiny, tidy minds, no doubt. But there is no help for it if we are to be loyal to the facts. So basically what he's saying simply is this. An antinomy is when you have two truths that are clear, persuasive, justifiable, but yet contradicting that go on at the same time. That's an antinomy. And what he's doing now is he's referring to the issue of the sovereignty of God and the free will of man being the fact that you can solidly go through Scripture and easily defend the sovereignty of God as well as you can come over here on this side and see many passages of Scripture, go through the Greek, run it through the history of Scripture and comparing Scripture with Scripture, and you will see the free will of man. That's an antinomy. Now, I went to Ray Steadman, who is the mentor of Chuck Swindoll. Ray Steadman writes this, The good news is offered to us, but unless we respond, we will never obtain the benefit of it. But if we do respond, if we come to Christ, if we believe in Him, then we discover the great fact that if it was God who began the process, it is He who chose us, and we have been drawn to Him by His Spirit at a work in our spirit. So again, you see that God launches this out because salvation is of the Lord. He brings about the Holy Spirit for conviction, understanding of Scripture, making us understand we need Christ. And then the other side of that is, and even those who are Calvinist will come up and say, but there still is where man needs to trust Christ. There is a little act of what goes on. Now that little space right there becomes probably the greatest tension of it all. God gives you the ability to believe, okay, but you still had to believe. God didn't give you the, belief, the ability to believe, still believe. The point of the matter is salvation is of the Lord, and it becomes an antinomy. So there's a tension in it. It's like a mystery novel. Listen to this illustration. I loved it. It says, we want to know who done it. Does God do it all? Do we do it all? The problem with this mystery is that when you read a mystery book, often in the last chapter, you'll finally find the solution to the mystery. The problem with this antinomy is that the solution is not found until it gets into eternity, and we won't understand it all. Another illustration I heard is if you take out a coin, and those of you that might have a coin, we hardly use coins today, don't we? 
And so I'm looking at a quarter. I don't know that you can see that. Uh, some of you just think about it with me. If I just stared and I studied one side of the coin, I'm going to see George Washington here. I'm going to see his wig. I'm going to see his pointed nose. I'm going to see the word liberty there, and I could go on and on. And I could really put this under the microscope, and I would think that this coin here has George Washington's face on it, and I would leave off the other side of it. And so does this coin only have George Washington's face on it? No, it does not only have it. On the other side, I can flip it over and I can see a beautiful eagle there. And in this uh, particular coin, I can look at the feathers in there. I can see what the uh, eagle is holding in its uh, claws. I can stare at this long enough and I find what it has to say. And I could think that the quarter is only an eagle. And yet on the other side, we have George Washington. And then there are some of those that they don't look at either one of those. They look at the edge and I think they have the whole slanted view of everything going on. The, the bottom line is simply this. I don't know that I'll ever be able to adequately, fully, completely answer this, so it's not a hill that I'm going to die on. It's not a hill that I will spill a whole lot of blood on. However, I will fuss over a few things. And I don't know where you are, but I encourage you to go about and have that particular study. One great Bible teacher has used this illustration and has been picked up by other theologians in uh, trying to resolve the tension by saying this. They said that you have like a railroad track. One rail is next to another rail. One rail is the sovereignty of God. The other rail is the free will of man. And those rails will meet, but they'll meet somewhere in eternity, but not in our lifetime. So I pray that we would, as we're studying, we come up with our belief, whatever that might be, on those two issues, You're listening to Make It Clear with the teaching of Dr. Stan Pons, founder of Make It Clear Ministries and president of Florida Bible College in beautiful Orlando, Florida. Make It Clear is dedicated to taking the Word of God with clarity into every person's world. It is the support of listeners like you who make the ministry of Make It Clear possible. You can provide your tax-deductible gift to Make It Clear online by going to makeitclear.org. Or you can mail your gift to Make It Clear, P.O. Box 607-901, Orlando, Florida, 32860. Thank you for helping us make it clear. If you would like to have Dr. Pond speak at your church or event, please send us an email at tellmemore at makeitclear.org. Thank you, and remember to make it clear. Make it clear.